0: Well, good morning. Uh, What we're doing, uh, not just today, but uh, right through this term, right through the autumn, is looking at a whole range of different examples from the Bible uh, where people prayed uh, and encountered God for themselves right there in the midst of everyday life. We're uh, learning from uh, some of the prayers of the greats of the faith, people like Abraham and Moses and Jacob, uh, people like Gideon and Hannah, Elijah, Nehemiah, David, Daniel, Mary, the Apostle Paul uh, and of course Jesus himself. Now uh, although I think it's something of an understatement to say that Personally, I'm pretty excited uh, about this whole series. Uh, I know that in reality, for a lot of people, the whole subject of prayer is a bit of a turn-off. It's like, for most of us, if we're being honest, prayer would fit into the could-do-better category. Uh, I think, by and large, uh, most of us in the room right now already know we should be praying. But if we're honest, almost all of us would admit that our prayer lives are lacking in some way. It's like we know we should pray, uh, we just lack a bit of motivation uh, and excitement and life in our praying. In fact, how many of you would be bold enough to admit that? You go, "I I know I don't pray as I ought to. Any takers? A fair few in the room. Okay, hands down. So here's how this tends to work. And I know we've kind of gone through this uh, in the past, uh, but this is the game we tend to play. Uh, I address where I see we all fall short in prayer. You leave at the end of the morning uh, feeling slightly guilty and condemned, uh, and that motivates you for a few days in your prayer life before discouragement creeps back in again until I come back round to addressing your prayerlessness all over again. And so we continue the game, and you hear talk of a series of prayer running through the rest of the year, and the oh no, it, it just ends up being ever so slightly awkward. And so... Bearing all of that in mind, here's what I thought we'd do with this series. Instead of talking about where we are lacking in prayer... Uh, I want to show you something of the potential of prayer. I want us, if you like, to take a step back and observe what can happen as a result of praying. And then hopefully, week by week, we might be ever so slightly more inspired to take God up on his absolutely stunning invitation for each one of us to engage with him in prayer. Now the plan this morning is to take a look it uh, may be one of the most famous and also one of the most remarkable prayers in the whole of the bible moses says to god god show me your glory which as we're going to see is a pretty astonishing request and god's answer to him is no less astonishing basically god says look moses i'd really like to but i can't Because it would kill you. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, uh, that's going to be our text today, Uh, you'd like to turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Uh, Just to fill in a bit of the background, a bit of the context of what's going on here, Moses, picture him, he's up a mountain talking to God and God says to him, my presence and my glory is going to dwell in a tabernacle, which was kind of a a glorified tent thing or marquee or something like that, Uh, my glory is going to dwell in a tabernacle, in a tent, right in the very midst of the people because I want you to be able to draw near and have my presence right there with you. But even as God is talking to Moses up on the mountain about the plan for the tabernacle, down off the mountain the people of Israel are worshipping a golden calf. And when God sees that, He goes to Moses, look, sorry, it's all off. This intimate relationship with my presence in the very middle of your lives, it has to go. Now, as you hear about that, as you read the stories, we worked through it this morning, you might be thinking, well, that, that sounds ever so slightly extreme behavior. But if you actually stop and think about it, isn't that pretty much how any intimate relationship works? I mean, think of marriage, for example. The the relationship is always based on each partner in the marriage honouring a short and sometimes long list of things that the spouse really hates and really loves. In fact, when you get married, your spouse really ought to present you with that list of expectations instead of leaving you to try and work it out for the next five 10, 20, 30 years. Here's my point. If you keep on doing the very things your spouse absolutely hates, and if you fail to do any of the things that your spouse absolutely loves, if you just violate that list, eventually there's not going to be any kind of intimate relationship. Now, God's better than us. In in every way, uh, but certainly in this way. Because we tend to keep the list of expectations to ourselves and make the other person try and guess. But when God says, I want an intimate relationship with you, he actually divulged the list. He gave us the list. It's found in the Old Testament. Earlier on in Exodus, it's called the Ten Commandments. Those are the things that God really loves and really hates. And that's the basis for an intimate relationship with him. But here in the story, the people of God, the people of Israel, are ripping it up. They're trampling all over it. And so God says, sorry, we, we just can't have that intimate relationship. But here's what I'm going to do. The First couple of verses of chapter 33, God says to Moses, leave this place You and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites. Verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. He effectively says, Moses, I'm willing to give you military power and success. I also want to give you this this land flowing with milk and honey. I'm prepared to give you economic success and prosperity. I'll give you tremendous power and wealth, but I won't be dwelling in your midst. Now, I think most people would consider this a dream religion. It's like, you're getting all the help you want, you're being offered wealth, you're getting power, but you don't have to do all that incredibly hard work of drawing near to God and praying and examining yourself and making sure everything in your life revolves around him. But the setup that God is offering Moses here, I think is what most people in the world would quite like. If there is a God, they want him to help them without them having to do a whole lot in response. Moses is kind of being offered this by God, but rather strangely, he will have none of it. Verse 15, Moses said to God, look, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you... Go with us. He says, if you're not going to go with us, if you're not going to give us your presence, please don't send us up at all. You can keep your success and your wealth, you can keep your promised land, keep it all. I'm just not interested. Here's why. End of verse 16. For what else will distinguish me and your people? from all the other people on the face of the earth. Do you see what he's doing here? Moses is speaking about identity. What distinguishes you from everyone else on the face of the earth is what makes you you, and not just another nameless face in a crowd. And so what he's saying is, God, thanks for the offer of power and wealth, but we don't want those distinguishing markers. We don't want those things to give us our identity. You see, in the world, if I feel like I'm wealthy, or if I feel like I've got power, if I have those things, then I'm somebody. I'm not just anybody, I'm somebody. Suddenly, I have an identity But Moses is saying, no you don't. He says, I know better. Those things aren't the things that can really deep down give you that identity. He's incredibly perceptive. He recognizes that all these things we're looking to get our identity from are forms of glory. But sadly, way too often we're content to settle for a form of glory that's not going to last. Now we've got to pause for a moment and do a little bit of work here because I think this word glory, it's one of the words kind of we sing about and pray about and band around in the church, but actually it's really hard to define. It's really hard to get to the bottom what it actually means. On the one hand, it, it, it sort of means weightiness, solidity, reality, But it also means importance and significance. The only English word that I know of that gets anywhere close to this uh, is the word matter. Because matter, on the one hand, refers to the physical. Weightiness, something that really is heavy, that's matter. But matter is also talking about significance and importance in the sense of you matter to me. The reality is, human beings cannot live without glory. It's like we all deep down need assurance that we matter. Some of us, to get that, are chasing professional glory or artistic glory or academic glory, or sporting glory, maybe political glory, or perhaps financial glory. It's like we're desperately trying to achieve. We're constantly trying to excel in our fields. Now, for those of us who are trying to get glory that way, essentially what I think we're looking for is someone to come up to us at the end of the day and say, you're the best. Now, I've read your stuff, or I've watched you play, or I've listened to your music, and I think you're the best. We've we've looked around, we've hunted everywhere, we want to hire you, because in your field, you're the best. I mean, when someone takes you to one side and says that to you, and someone says, look, I think you're the best, how does that make you feel? It's a good feeling, isn't it? Now, you might say, well, well, that's just ego. But I think it's more than that. It's like in that moment, you feel like you're real. You realize you matter. What you're doing matters. Now, maybe you're struggling to relate to this. You wouldn't say you're particularly looking for financial glory or certainly wouldn't say you're looking for artistic glory or sporting glory. Those years are well behind you. Or academic glory or professional glory. Or perhaps another way of putting it is to say we're looking for love. Do you know why? Because when someone loves you, when someone misses you when you're not around, when someone cares deeply for you and says, I love you, that's when we feel real. That's when we feel like we matter. Now Moses understands this. He recognises that we're all looking for glory in some way. But he's also wise enough to know that the wealth, the power, the fame, the popularity, or all the things that God's saying he will perhaps gives them are forms of glory that are bound to fade over time. It's like you think you have them, then the next day you find they're gone, and then you don't even have a self anymore because those were the things that defined you. Listen, if that is what distinguishes you from others, if that is where your identity is, then when it's gone, then you're gone. Like you lose your job. You spend all your money. The relationship ends. Your clothes go out of fashion. Your looks begin to fade. Then what's left... Where's your security then? Where's your identity? When that stuff's gone, then you're gone. Worse than that, these things don't just fade, but they fade you. It is one thing to go out and work and make money. That's a good thing. But if you're actually trying to get an identity out of it, If your very self is based on your success, it'll end up driving you into the ground. You'll overwork. It will consume you. Similarly, if you're seeking love, that's great. But if you're seeking love so that you know you matter, if you look at somebody and say, boy, if you love me, then I know that I'm okay. You're putting way more weight on that person or on that experience than you'll ever be able to get. Dare I say that these feelings can even creep into our attitude towards the church. Now it's great to be committed. It's brilliant to want to serve, to to want to use your gifts. But if that is where your identity is, if you're looking for worse from what you do, if your service is even slightly about your quest for glory, then you're setting yourself up for a whole lot of frustration and disappointment and hurt. You know, over the years I've seen any number of people hop from church to church to church, ending up more and more misunderstood and disillusioned, and cynical, and burnt out, because no church can ever truly give them what they're looking for. Moses is saying here, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. Keep your ministry success. Keep your loving, happy families keep your six-figure salary, keep your dream home, all of those things fade and are fading. Unless we have your loving presence right there in the center of our lives, we might have the world, but actually we have nothing. So first of all, Moses prays for something that I think we all need. He asks God for glory and refuses to accept anything less than the very presence of God. And Moses is told by God in response in verse 17, okay, the answer to your request is yes. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. But as important as that is, Moses ups the request. a bit like Abraham, when we looked at him a couple of weeks back, a bit like Abraham, Moses will not take yes" for an answer. And in verse 18, we get to the heart of what he's really after. Then Moses said, "Now show me your glory. This is something more than just having God with them. This is much more than God's presence dwelling in their midst. Moses is saying, God, I want to see you face to face. I want to look right into your glory. God, show me your glory. I reckon there are any number of different ways of trying to help you grasp exactly what Moses is asking for here. But Here's the one I want to press on you. When you see God's love... When you really see it, you know deep down you need it. God's love will bring you mercy and you know you're guilty. You need his love. The same way when you see God's power, you really see his power. Again, you know you need it. God's power will give you strength and you're weak. You need his help. The same way when you see God's wisdom and you're confused, you're not sure what to do, what decision to make, you know you need his counsel. It's like when you see other aspects of God, he's kind of a means to an end. Oh, I want mercy. I want power. I want clarity. I need wisdom from you. It's as though we're coming to God to get something from him. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to see God's glory is altogether different than that. It's something much, much, much greater than that. To see God's glory is to find God beautiful, not just useful. It's to find God satisfying just for who he is in himself. It's to worship him for himself, not for what you get out of it. Moses is saying, that's the experience I'm asking for. More than anything else, that's what I want. I just want to see you. I want to experience the satisfaction and the pleasure of being with you for no other purpose, with no other agenda going on than simply being in your presence. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine that you're engaged to be married. During the engagement, you decide to invest all of the money that your family has left you. And over time, you discover that actually it was a lousy investment and you lose the lot. I don't know, you invest it in VW or something like that. It all goes. And rather sheepishly, you report this to your fiancé and rather unexpectedly, your fiancé says, oh, well, if that's the case, then forget the marriage and breaks the engagement how would you feel? Well, among other things, you'd probably feel ever so slightly violated. (laughs) You'd be thinking, this person never loved me for me. All the time, this person loved me for the money. In other words, all they wanted was the money and I was just a means to an end. Do you realise that's precisely how many of us approach God a lot of the time? I mean, Why do you feel like, well I've been trying really hard to live a good life and I've been coming to church and I've been studying my Bible and look at all these bad things that keep happening to me. Why am I not getting my prayers answered? Why am I still feeling disappointed? What's the matter with God? I've had it with him. You're effectively saying you married God for his money It's like you're committed to him only as long as God gives you what you want or what you feel you deserve or have earned. Moses knows we all relate to God like that at times. We say, oh, I need this from you. I'm desperate for you to give me that. Moses says, what would it be like to actually have an experience of God's beauty so that regardless of whether your prayers are answered or not, just being in his presence, just seeing him for who he is, just enjoying him and praising him is the pleasure. Not a way of getting something else that is my pleasure. God himself is pleasure enough for me. Here's another way of thinking about this. When you're standing on a cliff and looking out at the ocean, don't know if you've ever done that, you've done that maybe, and you just can't stand there for ages because the, the, the beauty of the ocean in that moment fills you with pleasure it's like it's beautiful, but, but what is that? What what kind of pleasure is it? What, what does it mean? What's going on? It's not a physical pleasure. What is it? To, to to look at a beautiful ocean, to gaze up at the stars on a very clear night, to to look at an incredible mountain. Here's what I think's happening. When you're in the presence of beauty, there is this overwhelming sense of the meaningfulness of life and of your own life, and it sort of puts things into a bit of perspective for you. It's like, I'm so incredibly small, but at the same time, I'm connected to something much bigger and far more significant. It's like, Moses knows this. he's going, wait a minute, if that's what happens when I experience something of the beauty of creation, what would it be like to see the absolute beauty of God, of which all oceans and all mountains and all stars are but a dim reflection? That's what I want, he says. Show me your glory. And God says, no, no. But not no full stop. Verse 19. And the Lord said, remember this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. We'll come back to that a bit later on. I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Do you know where Moses has brought us? What we now realize is only in the face of God that the deepest longings of the human soul can ever truly, genuinely, really be fulfilled. It's actually seeing the face of God, looking at us in love. The only set of eyes in the whole world that matter, looking at us, loving us. Whether we realize it or not, that's the beauty we're looking for. Because then we know we cosmically eternally matter. To, To have God look at us like that, see the face of God turn towards us in love and to know we matter to God and therefore we matter eternally. That's the thing we most need but the one thing we most need in the whole world God says here is the one thing we cannot have. Do you know why? Well he said so here. He also said so earlier on in chapter 33, I read it to you, but earlier he says, you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. It's a very strange way to put it, don't you think? I mean, he's God. Doesn't he know if he's going to destroy them or not? Well, what does he mean, I might destroy you? Well, I think it's a metaphor to, in some way, try and get across just how incompatible we are with God. For example, if a little bit of fire comes into contact with a deluge of water. There goes the fire, just snuffed out. On the other hand, if you have a huge, blazing fire and you throw just a little cup of water onto it, it's just vaporized, it is gone. In the same way, if you bring infinite, majestic holiness, the awesome presence of God into contact with us, finite, sinful creatures. God saying here, you can't live with me. I can't bring you that close. It might destroy you. And so, the one thing in the world we most need is the one thing in the world we can't have. Now, I could finish right there. And head off to the next site and invite Aidy and Alice to come and lead us in rousing worship. I'm not sure it would go well. Because you'd be thinking, really? Is that it? Is it really that hopeless? And I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't continue right now. Because I don't think it is altogether hopeless. Here's why. If God said to Moses, you can't see my face and no one ever will. I think he would have just said no to Moses and left but instead as we read on we we find him doing this very strange ritual which as we're going to see foreshadows our future hope. I'll tell you what I'm going to do he says to Moses, I can't show you my full glory but I've got a cunning plan. Verse 21, then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then the Lord came down in the cloud. And stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, whichever you read that, it seems to be a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, I'm infinitely loving and compassionate and gracious. I want to forgive everybody, yet I'm infinitely just and I can never, ever, ever let sin go unpunished. But it's not a contradiction, it's actually a tension. And it can only be understood in terms of what God himself called this declaration back in verse 19. Remember what he says, this is all my goodness. Why is it that God can't ever let sin go unpunished? Because he's way too good in the sense of being perfectly just. And why doesn't God want anybody to be lost? Because he's way too good in the sense of being perfectly loving. Now, wait a minute, you say. He can't have it all. Either he's going to be perfectly just, which means he's never going to be able to save anybody, or he's going to be perfectly loving, but then he's not going to be able to judge everybody. God can be kind of good in the sense of being just, or kind of good in the sense of being loving. It's got to be one or the other. He can't be all good. He can't be infinitely just and infinitely loving at one and the same time. What God's saying is, yes, I can. And that is my goodness. That's my glory. That's the essence of my beauty. And Moses catches a glimpse of this. He doesn't see it all but he sees enough for him to have the greatest experience of worship he had had in his entire life. Verse 8, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. But you know, there is something way greater than this for us. Moses only saw the back parts of all the goodness and glory of God. But in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, in the first chapter in verse 14, John describes how the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. A more literal translation would be Jesus tabernacled among us. It's referring back to this story here in Exodus. Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling tabernacled, made his home dwell among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's saying that through Jesus, we can see the glory and beauty of God that Moses wasn't allowed to see. Moses could only see the back parts but we can see right in. In Christ, we get a life-shaping, life-changing view of the beauty and glory of God that Moses wasn't able to get. Now, how's that true? Well, think about it. How could God be infinitely just and punish all sin and at the same time infinitely loving and forgive us? Here's how. On the cross... Do you remember what Jesus said? He cried out in the depth of his agony, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? Why have you turned your face away from me? On the cross, Jesus got the cosmic nightmare of every human being. He got what you and I deserve, the loss of the face of God. He got what you and I fear more than anything else, absolute insignificance. He was cosmically ignored. Why? So that you and I because our sins are forgiven, because in Christ we now satisfy that list of expectations, so you and I can actually look right into the face of God. Do you know what that means? If Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that's how God can be infinitely just, because all sin was punished there. That's also how God can be infinitely loving, because he took it in himself, He absorbed it himself at infinite cost to himself. And so now, for all eternity, you matter to God. I tell you, if you see this, it really is the most stunning, the most beautiful, the most glorious thing in the entire universe. Listen, if you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you might still believe in a God who loves everybody no matter what. But here's my question, is that beautiful? Does that move you to tears? Does that really grab hold of you? Does that win your heart? No, it's just kind of, well, there it is. That's a god who isn't completely good. Might be loving, but he's certainly not just. Or you could have it the other way. You could have a god that's very just but not loving. And the only way you can get to heaven is if you fulfil the list of expectations. If you live a very, very, very good life, you have to really toe the line. You're going to have to try really hard. Then you might get to heaven. Is that good news? Is that beautiful? Not particularly. Does that move you? Does that change your life? I don't think so. Only when you look into the gospel of Jesus Christ does all the goodness of God pass before you and it's not the back parts anymore. That is the beauty of God. That's the glory that we all desperately need to see. It's in Christ that God looks at you and sees everything about you, past, present, and future, and says, I still love you. You matter to me. And so, right now, there's a sense in which we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's by faith, yet it is still changing, transforming our lives. I'll tell you, this is such a crucial part of what it means to be a Christian. It's just bursting out of the pages of the New Testament. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter describes how his, that's God's, divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by, get this, his own glory and goodness. Reminding us of this passage we've been camping out on today. His own glory and goodness have called us to him 2 Thessalonians 2:14 2, Paul takes this a step further he the risen ascended lord jesus called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our lord jesus christ in 2 Corinthians 3:18 paul says and we all who with unveiled faces reflect the lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. Even now, we see more of the beauty and glory of God than Moses ever did. Yet there's even more to come. This is how John puts it in 1 John 3 verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall finally see him as He is. So if you're in Christ, you have been called by his glory and his goodness. Even now you get to share in the glory of Christ. You're being changed into his image with ever increasing glory. You're reflecting his glory to others. And there's coming a day when you're going to see all his glory and enjoy it for all eternity. That is why prayer equals life. Because it's only in relationship with God that we get to experience, enjoy, encounter the true glory that we're all so desperate for only glory in the whole world that will not fade.